welcome once again to our Scott Walker episode. You you sound like the uh, the Misterons in Captain Scarlet. There's a bit too a bit too monotone, a bit too monotone. I think. I thought it sounded like Christopher Lee at the start of a, a metal album. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I guess if you missed last week, you should probably go and listen again because we were talking about Scott Walker, the Walker Brothers, um, his early teen idol years, um, the band coming over to Britain and being more successful than the Beatles. If you can Jesus, success man, l- as a l- yeah, living the, the dream. Mailing list. Living the dream, absolutely. I mean, he went from apple pie to like being associated with like swinging sixties London, yeah. effortlessly, like seamlessly. Effortlessly. <laughs> uh, and then he moved on to troubadour status, and then he sort of burned out a bit, certainly creatively, and kind of disappeared a little bit. And then where we left you last week was the point at which in the early eighties, a fellow called Julian Cope issued a collection of of his stuff to a new generation of certainly British uh, listeners. And it seemed to catch And suddenly there was renewed interest in Scott Walker But before we dive into part two Mark, do you want to tell these people how they can persuade us to keep making this show? Yeah, so first of all, you're listening to Unsung Podcast Just to let you know uh, If you you hadn't realised already Um, I am your co-host Mark Fraser And I'm joined by Chris Cusack and David Weaver Hi there Hey guys. It'd be a hell of a pocket dial if they ended yeah. up listening to this and didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. It's super weird. Um so if if you if you live in South America, you might want to um or, or North America or or Africa or Australia. We actually have fans in like Sweden and stuff as well. It's yeah, fucking mental. I've been get we've been getting some uh, fan mail from Brazil recently <laughs> and I feel like if they're gonna make so much use of the show they should at least chip in. You can do that by going to unsongpod.net forward slash donate. Yes, this Tinder account isn't going to pay for itself. <laughs> Tinder Pro. <laughs> uh, one, one, of our, uh, one of our tiers on Patreon is to pay for Chris's Tinder Pro account. <laughs> and yeah, we've got a lot of things out there. We've actually, we actually made a horrible t-shirt for somebody yesterday and he hasn't messaged us back to uh, when I asked him for a photo of it. Right? But he did like it. He said it was both horrible and beautiful. <laughs> um, so we're going to put up some t-shirts soon when I remember to do it. Uh, and they're very... Nice is not the word. Bold is probably the correct term. Striking. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, uh, relevant. Related. They're very related. Yes. <laughs> but if, if, you, if, you, if you're fancy enough and you want to flash your cash enough um, on Patreon, one of the tiers is we'll make you a custom t-shirt and they do not disappoint. You can trust us on that. But if you like if if you like Tinder and you, and you and you are you only want to do like sort of one off commitments you're not really any you know like a full time sort of deal then just ONS please just ONS. <laughs> There's also a PayPal as we said a couple of weeks ago we've had some interesting donations recently for for things uh, which we have to do um, so yeah uh, onsongpod.net for slash donate give us your money please this podcast doesn't pay for itself. Yeah, I, I even Thanks. I even shopped myself out and complimented Kanye sometime quite recently as a result yeah. of someone throwing us some money. I mean, I, I'm willing to debase myself. Trust me. Not quite John Walker. Not like not quite <laughs> Scott Walker levels of the, of the basement, but you know, you can get there. <laughs> so, as I said, we left it in the early eighties. There's uh, renewed interest in Scott Walker, and in 1984, something really interesting happens. Dave, he releases an album. <laughs> Magnan herders will stand in the wind, sweeping till shining and scared to begin. Shut him down here, 
<laughs> the only album that decade <laughs> might add technically yeah. well uh, there's a collection in 1980 of like his TV songs is that right but the, but the only actual original new album of songs comes in 1984 and it's titled Climate of Hunter and oh boy is it a departure yeah so his voice is now different here right it's he's moved away from the crooning baritone to just kind of yelling <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not quite I mean Okay I see where you're going with that But like, You don't want people thinking It's like Some mad ball or something like that <laughs> I, I mean It's a weird album But yes. It's quite interesting With a face Of fast sound Arrives From a space His refuge over it's a hugely significant album. Oh yeah, I mean, definitely hugely. Like th- this is the point. That, so I just want to like to, to contextualise this right. Scott Walker has been hinting at breaking from the orthodoxy for the, the many of his previous records. Mark, you spoke about that about how there's little moments of oddness and little bits of adventure, but they're all quite muted, and you have to sort of dig around for them. The Walker Brothers, as we'll discuss on their last album, had some very adventurous moments, but he's all in on this. He's like, yeah, this is where it- this is the first album where it's him on his own allowed to do whatever the fuck he wants and Mm -hmm. he's had a decade and a half away from thinking he might be a famous teen idol and he doesn't want to be that anymore he didn't even want to be that in the when he was one but Mm -hmm. this is just him accepting oh do you know what i am a musician who wants to explore darkness who wants to explore dissonance you know weirdness i have influenced you know donkeys yeah, <laughs> I've influenced, you know, folk like um, Brian Eno and David Bowie and all of those folk. So I'm I'm going to take the time in my studio. I'm going to take five years or whatever. I'm going to enlist Mark Knopfler, uh, <laughs> Billy Ocean, and then like Evan Parker, who is one of the world's, you know, leading free improvisation authorities in, you know, jazz saxophone. Um, and he, he had a long-standing professed love, though, of, of avant-garde jazz, yeah. even going way, way back. I mean, it's fitting with his beatnik image, but that did sort of like go against the grain of some of the stuff that he was doing when he was a proper pop icon. So, yeah, it, it found its way to the surface at this point. Um, it's, it's interesting to say this album had a decent critical response, despite the fact that it was really out there. It got to number five in the NME's Album yeah. of the Year Awards, I believe, which is... Which is pretty good going you know it's credible because the enemy was really cutting edge at this point as well the enemy had a period of like properly being the go-to magazine and it, this this was one of them or well it had a couple of these certainly the, the explosion of brit rock was another but this was one of the earlier ones and so i think that's significant because it shows that he's no longer perceived as a trite sort of tom jones-esque you know parody of like 60s pop music wasn't a big seller though no it wasn't a big seller but it's interesting listening to it. it it still does straddle what's going on at the time in terms of big 80s like aor driving rock absolutely yeah. at the same time yeah. as being you know really obtuse and esoteric yeah, I, th- 
I, I will say, I think, I think the distinction between this and the album we'll talk about in a moment is that this is a prog album. This yeah. is a prog 80s album and it does have prog rock moments. It's got big 80s drums. It's got 80s synth. It's got 80s song structure in it mm. as well. And even though it has gravitas and a lot of ambition, it's it's still got shape and form that, 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 that sets it in a, a time frame. And that's significant because it's not yet avant-garde. Taken up, I could hold him when all falls away. It, it, it has moments of being that, but it's not over the piece an avant-garde album, I don't yep. believe I think it's still a prog album, it's still tied, tethered to reality in that way mm. um, Yeah, he, he certainly had uh, interesting methods of recording though um, for instance, not letting anybody in the band hear what the melody was <laughs> Yeah, because he, did, he didn't want them influencing it, that's a really yeah. interesting conversation, I was, you know, I was thinking about that and it's like, you know, he just didn't want anyone grooving on anything so he's like, he didn't want them to know, for example what the root notes might be, because then they might lean into it, he didn't mm-hmm. want anybody grooving on a certain refrain he just wanted it played the way he wanted it played, he wanted to be fully in control he didn't want the musicians impacting upon the performance, or he wanted them doing that as little as possible unless they were requested to such as in the case of the the, the, the improv uh, brass uh, and, and likewise with the strings and things like performers were given parts that were really disjointed really isolated it, it was an incredibly frustrating experience for some of them and that becomes a theme in working with them that's yeah. not to reflect on him personally I don't really have an opinion on that but as a, a guy to work for it I believe it was it was quite quite challenging at times. Well, one thing that they've said about him was he would only accept the final recording if it was played with the emotion that you know was behind the song, and that was fine for him because when he recorded it, that's how he felt. But he wouldn't accept the recording unless he thought the players playing it were also going through that same you know inner turmoil or anger yeah. or anguish or whatever. Um, and, and even if it's just a set of strings playing one note for 16 bars, he would get them to play it over and over and over until he felt the energy. And, and quite, I noticed that came to a head on Tilt, the, the, the record that came after this, quite some time after this. As you say, playing sustained notes for ages and the players are like, how can I do it any differently? It's a sustained fucking note. Yeah. And the energy that Dave's talking about, what, or what Scott Walker perceived as... Uh, enthusiasm or intensity was really just frustration. The, the conductor said that he was like, "For me, I'm watching the musicians, and they're not intense or or into it. They're just frustrated." So his albums at this point are full of frustrated musicians, yeah. and that is the tension that he, he he went with. That's that's where he saw it. I mean, they're very dramatic. We'll say that, albeit I think this is a prog album. It's got moments of neoclassical in it, and it's got moments of like almost pop opera in it you know he really like vocally mm-hmm. it's not as crooned it's a, it's something else and it, it borders on like English speaking yeah baroque opera pop stuff it's, it's, it's very odd and very one of a kind and then just after that 11 years later <laughs> <laughs> yeah he kept himself busy <laughs> he uh, drops an album called Tilt There's a need to sleep in the shag of his stomach. Slide around his eyes. For me, this is 
such an important record, not just in the context of his career, but in the context of so many other careers of of musicians that have come since. Yeah, totally. Um, this is an avant-garde album. I gotta dance Four feet away Well, this is one that maybe we could come back to or maybe, you know, a guest might want to cover it because it is that important and that, you know, interesting. Definitely. Um, First part of a trilogy uh, uh, that would would emerge over time. Um, uh, One of the things I loved when you watch uh, 30th Century Man, uh, Mark Amund, who is a huge fan of Scott Walker, describes going to a listening party for this album and he's sitting watching it and he says everybody around him has been very reverent and sort of like, oh, wow, really? And Mark Amund is like, this is fucking shit. <laughs> what, what's going on here? What's happened to Scott Walker? I fucking hate this. Ironically, I really like it. It's 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 so interesting. It's very challenging. It's not fun. Um, it's got fucking songs about Adolf Eichmann. It's like baroque industrial music at points. At times it crosses into almost being a pastiche of himself as well, you know. But mm-hmm. I think one of the things that tempers that is that Scott Walker seemed to have quite a decent grasp on the absurdity of some of what he was doing. Oh, he's uh, very self-aware and yeah, yeah, quite self-effacing sometimes. He talked about a really interesting process in the recording of this album where he tried to abandon sort of conventional arrangements and instead work with what he described as sound blocks. So getting strings to play all these dissonant things until they formed just a block of sound and he would piece the album together with these blocks of sound. So it's a very unusual writing process. It's a very unusual uh, production and construction process. Um, again, yeah, the string players in this were at times just tearing their hair out, trying to get what he seemed to be asking for. Um, and I mean, there's there's a bit in it where I think they were told by their conductor, okay, you have to represent or depict bomber planes coming over a horizon flying towards a doomed city or something like this. And there's moments where it definitely feels like, has this jumped the shark? Possibly. There are definitely moments that you're kind of like maybe laughing at yourself a wee bit at the sheer audacity, but yet it sort of holds together. And that's when you consider how far out there it is and where he's come from again. That's that's no mean feat. It really isn't. There's something just undeniably admirable about how much he tried to do in this record and how close he got with most of it to pulling it off. Harness on the left Keeps withering and withering, then higher. It's not perfect, but it's very oh, it's, impressive. The ambition. It's uh, it's very ambitious and intense mm. and dark and abrasive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Brian Gascoigne in Thirtieth Century Man. So he was like the string arranger and conductor, as well as I think he played keyboards on it as well, and he he was really interested by the fact that Scott Walker was so intrigued by the gap or the, that line between chord and discord 
that's what he was trying to get the strings to find and about what he seems to be trying to find throughout sonically throughout his whole career is that odd drone where it goes slightly out of key or out you know and it's those spaces in his head that he can hear that he's trying to recreate mm-hmm. um and it's just really interesting that you can hear that you know as far back as you know scott two and scott three when he was a pop star um you know he's trying to do that 25 and then 25 years later he comes out with this absolutely yeah. batshit crazy thing I mean, the more he got into production, even in the early days, he was already, he, as soon as he got into production, it was a means for him to test the boundaries and he starts deconstructing some of what's going on right away. So he's, he's already pretty far down the road of that those adventures by this point because mm-hmm. he started so early trying to get in and about the, the mechanics of how that was working and how he could work against them. Um, so he started doing a fair bit of soundtracking. Um, well, I say a fair bit, I mean, given how non-prolific he was, uh, his first one, was for a film called Pola X or Pola X in yep. 1999, a French film. We shall never be the same. It includes, I mean, there's a lot of cameos in that. It's got members of Sonic Youth in it. It's got um, Bill Callahan yeah. from uh, Smog. It's got a Lebanese singer called Firuz, who was pretty famous at the time. Uh, there's some clips of them performing that that are absolutely stunning to watch. Like, stunning to watch. It's so overwhelming that these live performers being conducted. But it's 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 a it's a band and a musical setup that you're not used to seeing being conducted. It's you know it's not a classical orchestra, and so watching them respond and watching what comes out, it's very caustic at points. But it's quite like honestly, it's quite breathtaking to see it. You can imagine like the intensity of being there, and that, it works really well in the context of like, a soundtrack. Um, and then what I think is another astonishingly huge album for this guy is The Drift in 2006. Bearing in mind we're now 11 years after Tilt. Yes, and he's 40 years into his recording career. This is such a fucking intense record. He's now gone from taking baby steps from album to album to just, I mean, admittedly, large spells of time are passing, but he is never complacent in those large spells of time. The the steps he takes are, I'd say, consistent with the, the way a band might normally develop over 10 years. The way bands like Radiohead developed over 10 years, I wouldn't say that Scott Walker's travelling any less distance during that same time frame. He just has fewer intervals in between where you're checking in on them. Yeah. And the drift is, I mean, it is very, very high-end, drone, ambient, industrial, doom, everything. It's it's so many modern styles. It performed at a very high level by a guy who was an apple pie pop star in like the late 1950s in the USA. In the dream 
I am crawling around on my hands and knees, smoothing out the prairie. Whenever you remind yourself of the context of what's going on here, I think it, it's pretty staggering. Um, the subjects in this album are are fittingly intense. There's he talks about the Srebrenica massacre. Um, he talks that there's a song which we're bound to talk about now about the death of Mussolini and his mistress. Uh, and uh, there's a fantastic uh, bit of role play where he discusses the 9-11 uh, attacks uh, from the perspective of Elvis Presley's stillborn identical twin brother uh, Jesse. Yeah, Jesse. Jesse Presley, yeah. Uh, which is a true thing that I didn't yeah. know about. That Elvis Presley had a stillborn identical twin brother, but there yeah. you go. Uh, but, so, I mean, the album is dark as the night, heavy there's as a re- fuck. There's a review of uh, from the time that says, it's as, if, it's as if you're being slowly and persistently kicked in the gut by the album. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I, I must say, I Good love song. the first track yeah. in this album. Cossacks yeah. are. Yeah, it yeah, is. that's... It sounds so modern as well. Like, it, it, I mean, okay, this is 2006, but again, remind yourself of the context of who is making this. It's got a lot of swans to it. It's like a lot of things that swans tried to do, but arguably done as well as they ever managed. Yeah. Um, it, it's a lot of things that daughters have been, you know, praised for doing recently where it's already been sitting there for like 10, 12 years. It's much more structured, alternative, industrial thing. Uh, a bit of a departure from his soundscapey stuff because it has that spine of percussion. And I think unlike a lot of those other bands we're mentioning, it's got his sort of baritone thing. I will say the baritone is a, a love it or leave it for a lot of people. You know, they can love the instrumentation and really find his voice grating. But I think he's quite comfortable with that. I think... Uh, he's definitely a challenging album and his voice is definitely probably more lever for me at this point, to be honest. It does make me question whether... I mean, I listened to, I listened to all of this stuff and it did, it did make me question as to what people see in a lot of it. Like, really find it really difficult to the point where... You know, you know, you know, you know me, man. Like, I'm, I'm really good at trying to find something that I like about everything I do. Even if I don't like it, I always try and look at the positives. I think there's going to be people listening to this podcast that are going to yeah. hear these songs be like, what the fuck is this? And why is this a thing? And why do people enjoy this? <laughs> the thing is, I think this song in particular makes a lot more sense, though. It's got, I mean, it does, yeah, but it's just, this is like an outlier, really, right? It, at this point, maybe it, it gets a little bit more structured later on again, but yeah, mm-hmm. I get that. But And it's well chosen at the start of this album because it, it, it invites you in. It's, it's the it, pop hook. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's followed by Clara, which is the name of Mussolini's mistress, who was killed with Mussolini when he was lynched in the street. Um, the inescapable detail of this song is that the percussion in it is a guy punching uh, a side of pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the breasts are still heavy. And as you see in the film, in, in, in 30th Century Man, you see this taking place, including the take that made the, the album, and you see him yelling in frustration at the end of the take, <laughs> which they kept in the cut. Um, it actually, the, the percussive thing works 
pretty well. That's, I mean, it's 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 more about the mythology of the album, isn't it? I mean, you could have made that sound with a lot of different things. It sounds like a bit of a like slapping a tom skin, but you know, when you know the context, it gives it an added weight. It's very pretentious, but very so. he's also laughing at it when it's happening. You know, so there's 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 levels of pretension, but also self awareness and. It's it's art, and he's he's enjoying the freedom of it. It's interesting that we mentioned that you mentioned the potential, right? Because a lot of his vocal style uh, from Climate of Hunter onwards, and and the vocal and the lyrics themselves really hark back to that sort of beat poetry, free verse nature, which he was clearly very enamoured with in the sixties. Um, I'm not saying he's quite fucking Jack Kerouac or Alan Ginsberg, right? He's definitely not, definitely not get away with the words as those guys did. Um, but it, it kind of comes back to that whole no meter, no rhyme, no kind of hook to 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 something there. It's just supposed to be like a a bit of art in and of itself when you take it as it is. Um, but also the beat reporters were aware of how ridiculous and how how stupid that could be. You know what I mean? So you can still see that that, that literature is still even to this point. When the beat mm-hmm. posts have been gone and for so long, and they're a bit of a joke, uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff that's done, but now seems as, as a bit of a joke in literary circles because of how how much it was like vandalism almost. Um, you can see that coming into his way of making music as well. If that makes sense, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like going back to what you said a bit earlier, like in terms of sonically, it is very hard unless you know you've been going down deep dark. Mertzbow holes for years to find anything to grasp onto, you know. So why does this music exist? But like this music exists to to push those boundaries and test, you know, the edges of what is sonically doable and what is you know that is what experimental and avant garde music is. It's like pushing forward those walls, and then people come in ten, fifteen, twenty years later. And pick up those pieces that have been battered down and make mm-hmm. big songs that you can pick up on. Or listeners just learn a little bit more. Yeah, I, I do think, like, I'm not going to pretend that Scott Walker invented any of the stuff he did. Although in no, many cases, he, he was right at the cutting edge of it, you know, yeah. such as, you know, he was, he was peers with Swans when they were doing some of their most intense stuff. But I do think he obviously listened to a lot of music. He obviously had a very open mind to music. He was obviously very adventurous and sometimes I imagine just arrived at the same conclusions mm-hmm. as other people, maybe at the same time, maybe before, maybe after. Um, but I do love the, 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 there are glimpses of, I mean, you're talking about his lyricism. I love the balance of the pretension, the awareness of self and there are just these golden moments. We, we, we actually, we skip by it, but the track Farmer in the City that's on the, the, uh, t- the Tilt album. Do I hear 21, 21, The lyrics are nothing really to write home about, mm-hmm. that whole repeating of the 21, 21, 21. His awareness of how unnerving his own voice is makes that track work. I think that track is fucking brilliant. It's very intense, even though he's basically just saying a number for a large part of it. 
but yeah, it is really, really unsettling. And those are the moments when Scott Walker really works. His voice do- definitely does not work all the time. And it sometimes actually undermines some very interesting instrumentation. But when you buy into Scott Walker, you buy into the whole thing, unfortunately. That's because it's an autoured project. And you, you yeah, when really you go Yeah, when you go and see weird experimental performance art, you know, or visual art, mm-hmm. not all of it is stuff you want hanging up in your living room but you're glad that some of it is, you know, very interesting and you can mm-hmm. look at the, the guy doing a shit, uh, you know, on a glass and go, I'll pass on that bit, but, you know, I'm glad that he's doing it. The reason I can sit with me is because I, I, I don't want to keep going back to this, but, you know, a lot of the B-Ports were against this idea of, of having, like, a standard narrative or having, like, a... Like it's like you said, Dave, about the music pushing the boundaries. Like that's that's very much what they're doing. You know, it's a rejection of of materialism, which he clearly did because he spent so much time in that materialistic system of fucking major labels and stuff, and managed to release a super avant garde album, climb a funner on a fucking major label. So he kind of had a last laugh anyway, right? In that sense, yeah. But also, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like, sorry, but see the the commercial side steered them in one direction mm-hmm. earlier on but it also steered them specifically in the opposite direction absolutely yeah that's yeah. exactly it. like see if he had not formed the walker brothers and just decided to be you know alternative musician and throughout the late 60s and early 70s then i think he'd probably still be doing you know he might have been a david bowie or a nick cave or you know somebody mm-hmm. like that who yeah. tom pushed, waits that sort of style yeah again. exactly who did weird things but all within a certain parameters mm-hmm. you know they radicalized them yeah exactly so you know his extreme pop edge at the beginning goes to how far off into you know left field he went later on mm-hmm. um yeah so, so it was kind of like a, a fight against that see before we abandon this album i just want to draw attention to jolson and jones the fourth track in it this kind of industrial doom noise <laughs> It draws in a lot of influences that were happening in the in the mid to late eighties. Certainly, you know that, like as I said, he was not reinventing the wheel here, but um, the, <laughs> it also has the the unavoidable donkey sample mm-hmm. that, that definitely needs mention. <laughs> um, and I think there's a, there's machine noise in it that sounds very much like sprinklers going off. Uh, but I think that song in particular that demonstrates the sort of self awareness, but also the detached anti-melodic stance that he, that he took uh, to, to some of this work and it's, it's an interesting piece uh, in the context of that album um, Bish Bosh 2012 similar in tone to the drift, maybe not quite as oblique, like maybe not quite as featureless. It's like a little bit more structured. Um, it's dense, it's intricate, it's fucking punishing at points, and it's. I think it's a really hard album to summarise because there are so many textures and layers and so many things. Beauties in the eye of the beholder, and there's so many things about it that some people will think, "Oh, that's a gimmick," or that that bit's been sarcastic, or that bit's been you know deliberately difficult. Not 
Pain is not alone. Whereas other people will be like, that bit fucking is just so beautiful. So it's yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting looking at the overall like review scores from when it came out because this is 2012. Um, you know, he's had his documentary out. He's had then, you know, the Alan Yentob Imagine thing. He is now sort of this cult figure and everybody recognises how cult exactly. he is. And yeah. know, he, he's then become, you know, like we've talked about these legitimate touchstones where people can mention him even if they never actually listen to a fucking Scott Walker album. Um, but it's, you know, like Pitchfork give it eight, <laughs> but then NME give it three out of ten. <laughs> So, you know, he's still able to... Yeah, to, to, to develop... He becomes Scott Walker. He becomes the Scott Walker yeah. that people think he is in this record, yeah. right? Yeah. In the shadow sideburn, Charging on the purple toes Straight to God Basically. I think so. It's like a self self affirming thing, but that that's part of why going back to tilt. I think it's so bold that album because he didn't yet have that sort of hipster credibility to to buoy him. He was doing that without the sort of aid of a life raft. Yeah, you know what, what I mean. What has happened is the rest of the world is maybe caught up with him now, um, and he can only stay so far ahead. Or you know, yeah, he's uh, now granted license. He's now there's now a sort of a what's the word. Uh, there's now a sort of contract between him and the listener. I am going to do something outlandish and you're yeah. going to expect that and you're going to have to try and keep up with me because I'm going to take you places. And he still does that, but now he does it with an understanding from his audience. Whereas before, he was still fucking terrifying them and he was still absolutely catching them off guard and every 10 years they didn't know what the fuck he was going to do. And I think it doesn't make this any less admirable. I actually think Bish Bosch is really good. Um, it just means that it's it, the context is important to, to yeah. the music he was putting out at that stage um, I do think to, to illustrate as well how, how much more structured it was there's, there's points in this where it just goes into full on noise rock and good noise rock at that um, the track phrasing about two and a half minutes into that yeah, is, is really song. strong and could be you know early 90s amphetamine reptile uh, in another guise From the east come killer poses An interesting release, only an EP, but soused in 2014 with Sun. We've actually mentioned this in the show before. When I think you say it's an EP, it's 50 minutes long, so... Well, yeah. It's so definitely an album. It is, well, okay, <laughs> I think because it's five tracks, like I'm misreporting then. We've, we've mentioned it as being a little bit underwhelming in the past. I still feel that. Um, I mean, we've I talked am... about certain collaborate, collaborative albums and to me, it's it's a good record, but it doesn't show how heavy Sun can be and it doesn't show how weird Scott can be because it kind of, it takes the wrong things from each of them. You know, it's trying to highlight a, a contrast, and to me, it's like, oh, here's Scott Walker, the old the the old show tune guy, and we're going to put weird music 
under his, you know, his baritone voice rather than them just getting truly experimental. And maybe that's yeah. just because he just worked with the vocals and they worked with the instrumentation, maybe. I'm not sure. Here's here's the thing that I actually think Sun are quite a boring band. Um, I, I don't have this fucking super admiration that a lot of my friends share. Uh, and I actually quite liked what they did on this record. I, I agree it's not as heavy as their usual stuff and there's things on it. It's more playful than I expected it to be. And I think that made mm-hmm. me like yeah. it slightly more. It doesn't have that crushing intensity as some of the other stuff, but I also find mm. some of that quite fucking tedious and quite boring as well as a concept because Sun are so reliant on them being Sun and everybody fucking worshipping them. And I, I've never been on that fucking train. What's I don't think they're terrible by any means. I just I just don't get it. And so I think the the fact that this is like Baroque, neoclassical, industrial noise, lo- loads of doom, obviously, that side of it's interesting. Where I think Scott Walker got it wrong in this is that, you know, he talks in that documentary, I think a little bit uh, immodestly, about how his baritone sometimes mesmerises people and they tune out of it. And I mean... Okay, Scott, dial it down a wee bit. But I think on this record, that's a little bit the opposite in that his voice pulls you out of some actually quite nice music at times. Mm -hmm. And it's like kind of tramples it a little bit. I don't think there has been the best judgment exercised in the arrangement. I think a lot of the vocal passages could either have been done differently or could have been left out entirely. Because I think instrumentally, it's actually, for me, probably better than a lot of Sun stuff. That's interesting you mention that because uh, he actually sent Sun the whole album recording synthesizers and then he made it using guitars uh, and everything else uh, without any vocals on it. So, like, he composed the whole thing. Him and Peter Walsh composed the whole Mm. thing. Um, So it's not really a Sun record. It's son playing Scott Walker's music. Yeah, he's he's like their session band. He's yeah. No, they're they're his. I mean, their sound inevitably benefits it. They have such a fucking they have such a quality to them that it's undeniable. I just I just don't think they're that amazing. And I was surprised how much I liked this musically. I think Scott's voice is what damages this album. Uh, I think it's poorly used. Um, they followed that in sixteen with the with the children the, the childhood of a leader. Is that right? It's a film score. Yeah, I mean, again, predictably, it's very intense. It's got a kind of post-classical noise collage sort of vibe to it. it it's good. I mean, he's he's very, very good at doing intense soundscapes for film. He doesn't like structure, but that kind of lends itself to films. Because if you think about half of the scores you've bought in your life, certainly to the more unusual films, there are little moments and glimpses and passages. They don't go for full, complete songs. Oh, yeah, totally. And stuff like we've talked about Mika Levy and Johannes Johansson and stuff like that and it's quite fashionable to have a really interesting dense score now mm. and a lot of that takes from what mm. Walker's been doing from the, for the last 25 years so it's actually interesting that he didn't do more uh, soundtracks but I guess he's mm-hmm. he just mm-hmm. couldn't be bothered <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and that was his last recorded work and uh, yeah he sadly died age 76 in March 2019 in his adopted home of England, uh, surrounded by the 
rain and sad people that he loved so much <laughs> yeah i mean given the way he sounds you would assume he'd have some kind of tragic ending but you know he died a relatively accomplished happy old man so well done yeah he'd been a pop star he wanted to do weird stuff and he did that yeah uh, and he left a hell of a legacy as well. Um, we were never going to do justice to Scott Walker or the Walker Brothers in the context of these podcasts, okay? Even though we're doing a doubler here. I would encourage you to go watch 30th Century Man. That's a, that is a really good film. Uh, it's Obviously, he's helmed it, so you're not going to get any massive scoops. Uh, but it's very watchable and it's fascinating watching him work as well in the studio. Uh, there's a lot of interesting takeaways in it. Things like he feels he wasted two decades of his life. I don't think most people would agree with that, but certainly he was not ex- not incredibly productive during those years, but there was a lot of growing and maturing, I'm sure, going on. Um, he walks a fine line in that documentary. I find them mostly likeable, although at times a wee bit arrogant. Um, but again, how how well can you know somebody from something as as brief as that? You do get the sense he frustrates musicians and conductors, but also that he kind of he, he enjoys a lot of respect. Um, he seems entirely sincere, which I think is really important uh, uh, as regards his body of work. You know, he doesn't deride his earlier work. He loves some of it. He reissued a lot of it. He's proud of what he accomplished, and he's proud of what he accomplished at the end of his career. And I like that part of it as well. Um, he's embraced that change in himself and I, again I think so crucial to being able to listen to this stuff and, and actually appreciate it is his awareness of absurdity, his sense of humour the way he laughs during the, the takes because of what's going on and his sense of like fun and how much he wants to enjoy recording and, and that kind of, you know, when you're punching meat and singing about punching a donkey in mm-hmm. the streets of Galway, you know, it, 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 it definitely helps, you know that it, it avoids jumping the shark too often albeit there are plenty of sharks getting jumped over the course of fucking fifty nine years or something, um, but yeah, it's it's a huge body of work. Please, if you like stuff, go back and find a wee bit more about them, and that film will be a good place to start. However, we are now going to do Night Flights, which is the last album by the Walker Brothers, which we fucking talked about <laughs> a week and a half ago. <laughs> but Dave. You chose Night Flights, and I think I know the one giant caveat that we're going to say. So let's get out of the road. Shite. <laughs> well, no, six of the ten tracks are shite. But that's what is interesting to me about it. Yeah, so they'd done lines and the record before that, which were just trash, you know, country pop shit and then they G- yeah the record label GTO was closing down and they just had this opportunity to make a record that they wanted to make without you know and oh, the previous two records hadn't even been successful so it's not like they were trying to make the record to be successful they'd given mm-hmm. up on that and they were like let's just cut everything and you know full creative freedom we've only we might only ever have one chance to do this so let, let's go for it you know we've, yeah. got, we've got money let's try it it's almost a dream scenario, despite the perverse circumstances yeah, where your totally. label's closing down. It's like you've got total artistic freedom and you've got a platform and yeah. you're like, you literally walk into that room mm. and you go, all right, boys. And we've, and we've <laughs> probably got enough 
residual fame and success that it oh you know it might oh, sell definitely thousand copies worldwide or fifty thousand or whatever you know it'll cover its own arse at least yeah dude that's why we're talking about it you know they had enough capital to to, to get yeah. exposure um so so just very basically like the, the the 10 tracks on this album four of them were written by scott four of them were written by john and two of them were written by gary and they vary yeah. Quite a bit, specifically Scott's very from the other six, as Dave says. Um, let's start with uh, let's start with John, shall uh, we? But we'll hang on two seconds. So <laughs> Scott's four tracks were later released as a thing called the Shutout EP, which is why we felt that we couldn't really not just cover Walker Brothers and Scott Walker. You know, it would have been easier to cover them at one of them in isolation and do the other one another time. But this this has got one foot planted firmly in either project, and it's just it's impossible to ignore. So hence the massive undertaking. So yeah, uh, where, did you say you want to start with John? I was going <laughs> to Let's not start with John. Let's start with track one, <laughs> controversially. Shout uh, out. Yeah, shout yeah. out. Roll off those gimmicks to the boys. Let them send it all up in the air. There is crouching and wailing on snow down here. We must freeze off this atmosphere. So... I mean, yeah, just the production. What What's really interesting, it's already kind of post-punky, even though punk is only happening. No, uh, this sounds like Thin Lizzy. That's what this sounds like, man. This sounds yeah, like but it's Lizzy. like a mixture of that, but then you've obviously got, um, you know, Scott Walker's vocal over it. It's Aye. kind of driving rock. Still a little bit weird, and then I just love that it fades yeah, out yeah. as well. Love a fucking fade that, out. It's got like a really two tracks. <laughs> it's got a really discordant keyboard, like in the back, like yeah, synth yeah, in the background, that, that which, makes which it, gives you yeah. gives you that unsettling yeah. vibe. The guitar solo is also really weird, especially for this period in time. <laughs> you know, it's a really strange guitar solo, man. Yeah, you know what? It actually feels eighties. It feels like an eighties song. Well, that's it. I think I think the first four tracks all kind of feel it. Well, first three tracks all feel pretty 80s they could be of different types like they could be driving rock or they could be uh like post-punk or you know they could be roxy music or they could be talking heads or but mm. still with you know elements of 70s pop or whatever well let's get a really deep disco groove it's, Aye, definitely. Uh, like the, the beat and the the, the the bass are very very disco uh, it's, the, the, it's it shouldn't work this shouldn't work <laughs> <laughs> you know the production on it's interesting for me because this is like one of the moments where they've totally rejected that Spectre-esque style that Walker Brothers mm. as a pop group used. This is big and open it's like fucking the Grateful Dead or something like that. It's like it's got this big roomy sound to it. Um, I also think he's doubled his own vocal in this. He's not. That's actually John. Is it John? Singing with right, him okay, and, well, and all yeah, four of the songs John is singing with. Well, him. in that case, yeah. see the doubling on this. The effect of the doubling on this has a really oddly pitch shifted sound to it. It's like very slightly mm. seasoned it's slightly uneasy along with that synth that you're talking about at the back so uh, brilliantly titled Fat Mama Kick track 2 
also great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like there's nothing. The production is so weird and stripped back. Like there's no, there's nothing on top. It's all just like this big farty bass, do do do, and like the fills are cool. The percussion or the, the the drums are happening way over on one side, uh, and he's kind of just shouting angrily or oh what's going on and do you know who it reminded me of <laughs> is a uh, like dead rider that sort of ah uh, yeah yeah you're right slightly yeah. atonal stripped back post-punky avant-garde stuff I can imagine them being big fans of him actually yeah it does it's a weirdly kind of dark jazz vibe and it bursts into a big jazz bit uh, yeah. in about a minute it was a minute 36 I've got written down here as you say like uh-huh. hats in it really playful lyrics are really abstract um, I think the the droning there's these droning sort of piano key smashes in it really set the, the scene for, for what he was about to start doing in his later career mm-hmm. uh, there's a very odd choice of vocal effects in this that plays a big part in how weird the song yeah. sounds um, and I do think within this song yep, Dead Riders a good uh, reference I think you can also hear everyone feel like John Zorn to like Zoo you know, uh, you totally. can really hear a weird rocky jazz thing emerging here, a sound yeah. emerging here that's dead unconventional and probably would appeal to like your beef art fans, things like that you know yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting for me uh, because the sparseness of the arrangement itself is really unsettling alongside that vocal effect. And the chorus to me sounds like shattering glass, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but the thing it reminds me the most of, right, and you'll probably get this when I say it, is it sounds like Black Star by David Bowie. Uh, almost identically. Yeah, definitely. a good point I was going to say David Bowie has been hugely influenced by Scott Walker in a number of ways but he's later very very end of career stuff absolutely yeah, yeah. totally it sounds like this song like that, that album sounds like this song you know? it's quite interesting yeah. like in 30th Century Man the doc- documentary Brian Eno took this album to Bowie and you know was like you need to fucking listen to this and then Bowie was just like <laughs> I love this so much I have no idea what he's fucking singing about but I love it <laughs> that's fucking rich he covered Night Flights didn't he Bowie he covered Night yeah. Flights Uh, well, let's go on to that then. Track three, Night Flights. There's no hold. The moving has come through. The danger brushing you turns its face. I guess this is like the pop. It's quite dancey. Yeah, this is like yeah. 70s rock, <laughs> but um, oh, I mean, I, it's really catchy. Mark loves a bit of fretless bass, doesn't he? <laughs> I do. Uh, you know, the thing I like about this song is like it's it's almost a pop song, but it's just a little bit yeah. off. It's kind of a little bit male- malevolent, sorry. And it's yeah, uh, I, yeah I've it's, got it's creepy, man. I like yeah, it. I've got weird <laughs> funk pop, but with a hint of drama. You're right. There's yeah, just- and it cheekily brings in you know that sort of Phil Spector and sixties um, you know schmaltzy strings at the background. 
but then it's got this quite solid driving rhythm to it uh, i really like his verse because just the chord progressions happen a little bit later than you think they're going to happen Mm-hmm. I, th- I actually think it's interesting that you mentioned Bowie on the previous song because this is the one for me that I really hear Bowie on. It's so cold The dark dog of my dogs The stitches torn and broke The raw meat feels But this is like 70s or 80s Bowie. But the vocal stylings as well, the melodrama of, of Boy. In fact, not even melodrama, the sci-fi drama. There's like a sci-fi quality to mm-hmm. it. Like, yeah. There's a bit in it early on in the song where the, he does a big vocal lift and there's a kind of really serpentine vocal melody that emerges out of it. And it could have been David Boy. I mean, it's so it's so indicative of, of, of a technique that he you know became really, really famous for. Um, yeah. Also, there, yeah. there's a point in this song as well where there's a really nice use of an arp in the, the left speaker or the left headphone depending on what you're using about two minutes into the tune it's just like it's a great wee touch I'll, I'll come back to the, the album overall but production wise ideas wise this is so far removed from what he had been doing at this point that you're three songs in and you're like what the fuck is going to happen next yeah. but I guarantee you that nobody alive in 1978 <laughs> thought that the electrician was going to happen next no I mean, yeah, track four. What what the fuck? This was a single. This was a fucking single. It's like the most metal song of the decade, and it was a single. So we should mention that we have started, for Patreon only at the moment, but we've started a new thing called Unsong, where we talk about songs that stand out. And I was... I initially just thought about bringing the electrician to Unsong because it's such a mad song. And but I have yeah. that in my notes, by the way. I have in yeah. my notes, Dave, did you originally want this for Unsong? Exactly. But we couldn't have talked about two and a half, for two and a half hours about <laughs> just about <laughs> Scott just around this one song. So it's great that we've given it more context. Yeah, it would have been a brutal edit. Like what the <laughs> fuck, man? What is what is this? Yeah. So, I mean, what, what, what even fucking is this? As you say, it's like this brooding ambient landscape for about a minute before anything even happens. Yeah, but like even yep. just when it first kicks in, it's like that g- guitar note that's like, that's drone, that's, you know, that's sun there 20 years before they got yeah. together. That That's just total doom. The insistence on legato strings in it is really interesting. The mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. bass pulses in it. Um, I think as well when the vocals arrive in this song, it sounds like Michael Gira. It sounds like Swans. It's yeah. it's it's where that was coming from. But they appeared what, two years later, three years later. The, the tops, mm-hmm. big influence in them, I'm sure. Uh, I know that Jarbo, who was in Swans, uh, later appeared on a, on a Walker Brothers or a Scott Walker tribute album. 
Um, I think it's about two minutes, at least two minutes and maybe even ten seconds before the first real release of tension happens into that yeah. oddly euphoric chorus. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's that's weird. exactly like Black Star by David Bowie. Like he does the exact same thing in that song. It goes from like a really dark and booty place to like a really big euphoric chorus yeah. in a which was seen like, as like a revolutionary album. Yeah. Uh, 40 years later <laughs> yeah which it, it wasn't it but uh, you know well you know by many of the the Guardian press <laughs> I, I, I mean the vocals still have that oddly pitchy quality to them as I said earlier on where it sounds I, almost like they've been sung in a different note and then retuned or something it's really really strange three minutes into the song it descends back into that really oppressive darkness and you notice the little castanets I think it is like the little kind of sound effect almost like BBC sound effects thing that happens yeah. but then um, you've got once again like that Bacharachy, you know, sort of show tune stuff. Yeah. Comes well, you in should, again. Forget Bacharachy. It's like a fucking Disney movie yeah. when it when it comes yeah. in. It's like it's like strings and harps and shit. It's absolutely bizarre. I mean, it's such a song of extremes, man. Pitch, well, not pitch black, but oppressively, like, charcoal grey into this absurd, blissful, fucking, like, blossoming sort of chorus, yeah. like, motif. It's so, so odd. And it's really unsettling as such. And in the context of when it came out, in the context of the band that were, like, releasing it, I mean, what the actual fuck must people have thought? Yeah, it's like in 2003, Robbie Williams coming out with, like, a grindcore or, you know, <laughs> something like that. It's just, like, this is not what I was expecting at all. And wh- what I love is, um, just on the, on Wikipedia talking about this song, the song was first recorded and released by Walker's pop group, the Walker Brothers, as their 14th UK single and last official released while the group were still active in 1978. The single did not chart. The song describes the work <laughs> of a CIA torturer. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, wait a minute, this is the Walker Brothers. <laughs> you know, I, I, to give to give some credit to the likes of Lurie, there were albums coming out that were shaking people up like metal mm. machine music and things there yeah. was there was definitely a spirit of adventure what I think is amazing with the Walker Brothers is like the the dramatic shift you know totally. that, that, that well, the like, dramatic shift from album to album and then from song to song and then within the song <laughs> you know they didn't just do a whole album of alright we're going to do a whole album of fucking about with a, an harp or whatever they still had that show stuff going through the darkness still mm-hmm. and that's why it's such a you know well just these four tracks are so golden so here's the thing right our job now gets much easier because the last six songs of this album are pretty <laughs> throwaway um yeah. i mean yeah. death of romance the next one is so fucking incongruous given what you've just been subjected to When it comes on, it sounds like late at a party where you've been sitting around the the computer or the iPod or the record player, whatever, with your mates, and you've been putting on increasingly fucked up music until somebody else at the party's got fed up and they've come over and put on a completely different band to get the party vibe back (laughs) on. 
Because <laughs> it sounds like a pure, yeah. Nasty yeah, so kind of 70s two. funky, sexy, soft rock. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, Death of Romance and then Den Hag. So these were, two were written by Gary. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they've let their creative freedom run riot and oh, be what you want to be. You can be anything. And Gary obviously wants to be <laughs> in a really shit Steely Band, Steely Dan ripoff you know, with party <laughs> bass and uh, take cocaine. I guess it is a little bit early. You know, he. it sounds like he could want to be in Miami Vice, but... Um, I, have a, I have a challenge for the audience. Can you name us, and please do this in the socials and in the group, a good song written by a Gary? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems it like it would be but... easy at first, but... And, and Gary Glitter is not allowed, plus his name's Paul. Um, but uh, Paul Gad, yeah, but... Um, Go for it. Gary Moore, did he not do... Well, for, like, on the beat, Did he write off, any good songs? No. Gary sure. Moore, oh, he wrote that one way um, within Lizzie, didn't he? The, the one that he released way. Aye, there was a... That's a belter, aye. Anyway, Den Hag's shit. It's like, it's got the word Cadillac in the first line. It shouldn't have happened. Yeah, um, it's got a weird honky tonk piano. Yeah, it's like, like Neil Young, but like fucking awful. And also, Scott's not singing on these, and the vocals no. are just shit and yeah, so like bland, rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John isn't on any of those two songs either, so it's like Gary's out in his own, <laughs> just doing his own shit. Yeah, well, <laughs> At least Scott, then. Scott does actually appear on a couple of a couple of uh, a couple of John's tracks, but he does like keys and stuff. He doesn't really do vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think but, r- rhythms yeah. of vision to me sounds like Van Morrison playing with Robert Palmer. It's fucking stinking. Yeah. It's just pure deep purple. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> purple. Yeah, really yeah, just like a really, really, really pale imitation of Fleetwood Mac. Uh, you know, I like the fact mm. that on track eight, Disciples of Death, John tried tried for a moment to rival uh, Scott with like the, the morbidity of the, the, the title, but it, then it's just this shitty 70s M.O.R. This song reminds me of the kind of thing Tony Soprano would have got tickets for in Taking Carmela. (laughs) 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 Kind of American, tedious American stadium rock that would have been big on a reunion tour in the early 90s. I mean, there's some nice tones in it, actually. It's well produced, but fucking musically... It's yeah. not good. Um, Fury and Fire is neither of those things. Mention the will of becoming Be my reflection The ice and the steel 
it's even less interesting actually than that that pre- it's in the same key it sounds like the same song <laughs> uh, and then Child of Flames A little bit more disco strings have like a really yeah. 70s disco feel to them actually yeah, got a bit more female vocals yeah it's got it's got a chorus that song it actually has a chorus you know they finish with john's strongest tune it's cheesy and forgettable but it is definitely the best of the others um but yeah i mean that it's an album that is really all about those first four tunes and that's why i said when they released the ep just of those tunes it's just it's kind of unavoidable I do see why you nominated it though and it is a particularly interesting discussion to have it exist with these six tracks tacked on to those those four doing all the heavy lifting yeah and the fact it was like long out of print as well you know it didn't mm. sell at all even though it was hugely influential to a lot of alternative and interesting artists in the 80s it didn't chart it was out of print until it was start you know the mid 90s and it came out on a budget CD and then you know, it's only recently in a sort of retrospective review, people have gone, holy fuck, the first four songs really showed us exactly what was going to happen with Scott Walker. Yeah. And the uh, other six showed us exactly what was going to happen with the other Walker brothers, <laughs> i.e. they were going to stop working in music. <laughs> it is definitely the fork in the road, isn't it? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really torn on this record. I mean, I, I sort of feel like in one hand it has to win because of just how much stuff it led to and, and what came after it and its part in that. It's a pretty fucking awful record. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, even, I don't particularly like the first three tunes. I can respect the adventure and the production and the, the, the voyage that the guy was on. I really like The Electrician, but I, I, I think the other three are pretty forgettable for me as well. I don't think it's a good record musically. It's not something I want to... I don't even give a fuck about owning it. Um, but I do think... I, I want to do a later Scott Walker record. I'll be honest, I, I want to revisit mm-hmm. them. So I'm tempted to say no, just because I think that The Drift or Tilt... Yeah, or but I think this isn't Bish Scott Bosch, Walker. This is uh, The Walker Brothers. I, I get it, I get it. But I would like to... I think I would be more inclined to come back and just specifically do something of his later e- epoch. I think... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will say I do it before before I surrender the floor. I do want to say I think it's fucking fascinating the contrast between how big they were even at, even at the time uh, concurrently with the Beatles, uh, and then the inability of their catalogue to endure the way that a lot of their peers did. I mean, because the Walker Brothers beyond those early hits really fucking struggled. And that, that just really fascinates me. And I think in the context of, of his musical decisions, it's, it's something you can't disregard. I think that's because you had one guy who wanted to go vastly experimental and try producing weird shit. And then you had mm. just two guys that wanted to be making soft M.O.R. rock. But, you know, I mean, in conclusion, I'm going to abdicate responsibility because I'm on the fence. I do think it's a very, very important record to, to discuss and to draw attention to, specifically because of the electrician. Um, but I also don't like it. And I would rather we revisited Scott Walker for the purposes of the show and really looked at certainly one of his last four records. I'd, I'd, I'd be very keen to do something like that. Mark? I kind of, I basically agree with Chris. To build on that point, I suppose half of this record at least is absolute garbage. Yep. Um, but that's, that's kind of the point. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> I was going to say that I did not enjoy listening to Scott Walker at all. Um, I can appreciate his music like on a cerebral level or a musical level. Yeah. 
I've got a lot of fucking respect for it. I can see what it's influenced. Um, I actually enjoy a lot of his ideas. I, like I like the th- I like the ideas behind his music yeah, yeah. and the concept behind it as more than I enjoy listening to the music itself. Yeah. Night Flight's probably approximates the most uh, interesting and listenable that he can be at the same time. Um, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. I, I, I think the balance is there on those four songs, and the Electrician's a cracking song. It's just batshit crazy. But in, a, in an endearing kind of way, the, I think that's the thing I don't like about his later stuff is it's not endearing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I understand it's, enge- yeah, it's I understand it's engineered to not be endearing. It's engineered to be avant garde and challenging. You know, it's supposed to be like that. And I came to this conclusion because I was thinking about my relationship with music in general, right? And for me, I'm very much a gut feel kind of person straight away, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and even the bands that can be quite abrasive and quite hard to get into, there's usually something in there that will bring me back, that will make me want to go back and listen to it. I mean, I've got a playlist of Scott Walker songs that's three and a half hours long. <laughs> uh, and most of that's made up of older stuff. Mm. I don't think he's consistently got an album which hangs together really well as a bit of art. I think there's great artistic sentiments and statements in a lot of his songs. I don't think he's got an entire piece of work which is worth sitting through for that moment of, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. Night Voice is maybe the closest to it, but the other songs, like, that should be an EP, and if this was an EP, we wouldn't be talking about it. So I think I'm going to say no for that because of that. Okay. Yeah. This is an EP, so <laughs> that, that, that's yeah. kind of the point. Like, so you're you're saying you you don't buy it for the album, you just want it for the shutout EP. So there mm-hmm. you go. Okay, well, I mean, yeah, you kind of know my reasons behind it. I, I, yeah, I was brought here purely on the strength of the electrician, and then gave the rest of the record a go, and I actually ended up just really enjoying shutout, fat mama kick, and night flights. Like maybe on a slightly less cerebral level than the electrician, but I just actually think they're great songs. But then I just I love the fact that the rest of the record's so shit because of yeah the whole concept of this record. And you know how often have we looked at albums and gone oh you can physically see in the terms of the track listing and the credits mm. the path of a really interesting artist and then two guys that we just don't give a shit about. Yeah, I guess it was also just an excuse to go- talk about Scott Walker because yeah, he's I mean, just a I, really interesting artist. So I really thank you for that because, as I said, he was peripheral to me and I've never sat and taken the time and so it was really good to be forced to do that. And I think probably of the three of us, I've probably gotten the most out of the later catalogue and I think I will spend a fair bit of time with it. So my next nomination will be Scott Walker for a while, Mark, so you can enjoy another well, two weeks. Well, yeah, so I mean, I'm, if this does go in, then I'm happy to do a Scott Walker again, you know, we'll give Mark a break. But um, <laughs> I, would just go, I would just Scott Walker again. Yeah. Like, uh, Cause, and I, so- I, I think there's room for both because I think we could have night flights in here as a weird oddity Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know sort of signpost of the future and then we could have a f- sort of finished but imperfect product from a you know mad genius later on true I would enjoy to Scott Walker himself because as an intellectual exercise I would definitely relish that um, yeah. not from a pure visceral enjoyment point of view I don't think I would but look, like I said there's a lot of great ideas now that which I like and I like I like what he tries to do I just can't make that final leap to actually liking the music itself we uh, <laughs> we are a long way from me first in the gimme gimmies yes we are <laughs> yeah, that's true um, okay David so, it's mean, your it's nexus time. yeah it's that time of the of the uh, month that's that time of the month 
the, this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for is us? Not good for Why am I here? So uh, who who are we getting to and who chose it? Oh, the next the nexus this week's a belter. It was chosen by Kevin McCormack and it is Ted Nugent, the Nudge. Yep. And I think that was chosen on the day that he found out he had COVID, wasn't it? <laughs> it was certainly around yep, about then. He yeah. previously denied it was existing. Yeah, he played a gig with, with COVID, <laughs> no mask. Uh, yeah, classic. So uh, I'll be surprised if there's some that we some roots that we don't all touch on or both touch on, but yep. also there's a lot of different paths that we can go down. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I went down Lulu. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting one. So, um, yeah, Scott Walker and Lulu, I think in 1966 or 1967, were voted Valentine King and Queen, like pop King and Queen. I can't remember the magazine. But uh, in 30th Century Man, there's a little bit of Lulu listening to later Scott Walker stuff. And she's just like... Oh my god, <laughs> what what does this mean? <laughs> I don't understand because uh, you know she'd obviously never heard the, the more esoteric stuff. There's a, there's a great bit in that as well though because she confesses to how much of a crush she had on him when she was touring supporting Walker Brothers and how he yeah. used to pat her on the head and yeah. she hated and she's it. Like I don't want to pat on the head, I want to winch you. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, aye, sorry. Have we uh, just uh, so I, w- I just wanted to mention this because of Lulu. Did we ever discuss how much people hate Lulu? <laughs> on this no. I mean maybe I might have talked about this years ago but you know we've been doing this podcast now that we can repeat stories but like my work I actually decided to put on Lulu for an out- outdoors gig about three years ago um, and it didn't sell very well and I remember putting up a social media post saying oh hey you know blah blah Lulu's coming to play in Glasgow outdoors and quite a lot of people <laughs> replied with uh Fuck that Tory bitch. Uh, <laughs> oh, will she be singing in a Glaswegian accent or a London accent? So apparently there's a lot of hate because it seemed that she moved away from Glasgow uh, to London and uh, forgot her roots. Um, second of all, apparently she also, at some point in the 80s, maybe supported Thatcher a little bit or said that she might vote Conservative. Anyway, so... <laughs> From 79 to 87, in those general elections, Lulu did support Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party. So as somebody from Glasgow, she is still ostracised to this day. And I'll just, I want to give you a couple of choice quotes from the Facebook event that we put up, uh, including, uh, there was one that said, if she was playing in my back garden, I wouldn't even open the fucking curtains. Uh, and that, I think that was like Derek from Airdrie. But I'll, I will always remember uh, Linda from Pollock or something like that just said on Facebook. Don't, li- don't talk bad about Pollock, mate. No, no, I, I can't remember if it was Postle or Pollock, but just a just a nice Glasgow wifey. Um, you looked at her Facebook, you know, just a middle-aged, you know, mum or auntie. And she, she commented on the Lulu Facebook event, 
I would rather shit in my hands and clap than listen to that Tory bitch. <laughs> <laughs> She's shit a in my guy. hands and clap. <laughs> what does that mean? Definitely for Um Anyway, Lulu in 1974 sang the title track to uh, The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, oh, I see where you're going. Yeah, the second Roger Moore, uh, James Bond film. And it was shit, actually, considering how good Live and Let Die was. Yeah. Uh, Roger Moore, he actually did the most Bonds, uh, even though by the end of it he was about 75. In 2010, he was the voice of Tab Lazenby in Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore. I don't know if any of you mm. caught that uh, classic Hollywood uh, movie. Surprisingly, um, no. Uh, also featuring... In Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Galore, which I believe was the second in the Cats and Dogs franchise. Other voices included Bette Midler, Neil Patrick Harris, Nick Nolte, and Christina Applegate. Christina Applegate, who also uh, played Veronica Corningstone in Anchorman next to uh, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell played, oh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Chaz Michaels in uh, Blades of Glory, which is actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, Blades of Glory featured a little cameo from somebody, I think two guys your age will remember, uh, Terra Patrick. Either of you that ring a bell? No? Terra Patrick? No. Uh, Terra Patrick was Penthouse Pet of the Month for February 2000 and a former pornographic actress and model. She was around about the same time as Jenna Jameson, that sort of late 90s, early 2000s. Dave, do you, know, do you have any idea how woke we are? Why would we know that? Yeah, like, I was <laughs> totally like, who do you think we are? <laughs> I think that you were teenagers in 1999 and you 100% know who Terra Patrick is. Terra Patrick. I was barely a teenager in 1999, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Terra Patrick. That's what was Terra Patrick was also... And I, I, oh yeah, no, they ended it five years later, but was married to uh, Evan Seinfeld of Biohazard. Biohazard, they did films together, I know that. Yeah, and he was also a, a porn actor at some point. Um, Evan Seinfeld <laughs> was part of the band, well, they, they originally wanted to be called Fist, but then later changed their name to Damnocracy with Scott Ian from Anthrax, uh, Sebastian Bach from Skid Row uh, and John Bonham's son, Jason Bonham, as part of the VH1 reality show Supergroup. Um, and Ted Nugent joined them on that TV show and like played with them. And I mean, I never want to see that program in my life. That sounds <laughs> absolutely fucking awful. Uh, right. Um, Mark, will I go or are you go? Yeah, I'll go because mine's is actually short, funnily enough. It. <laughs> it's also a Dave Grohl Nexus. No, oft oh, I haven't had one of them for a while. Prince, <laughs> Prince this week. Nah, no Prince this week. There's, there's no way to fucking show on him <laughs> into this shit, man. There you go for it. Um, so Scott Walker wrote and performed the uh, songs and the soundtrack for Vox Lux. Uh, one of the songs called Anthem was co-written with the producer Greg Kirsten. He also produced the album and co-wrote some of the songs on the record that Walker didn't contribute to. Um, he also produced Concrete and Gold by the Foo Fighters. Okay. Uh, Dave Grohl's actually a fan of Ted Nugent um, even though he's not a fan of his politics and the Foos have actually been known to cover Ted Nugent on occasion at live shows um, and apparently Ted Nugent's also a fan of Dave himself right but 
this is this is I mean that that is obviously the Nexus complete, right? But I actually have something which is a lot funnier than that, which I'm going to chuck in. Um, so. In 2018, there was a, a Foo Fighters rider was leaked online, right? And it had a list of forbidden items, which included things like uh, mixtapes not in CD format, um, forbidden scythes were forbidden, <laughs> furniture chairs or stools were forbidden, um, any mention of Friendstar or Webster, uh, air horns and loud hailers, leg warmers, free radicals including antioxidants and Hong Kong foo. Uh, objects that can be used to projectiles such as fireworks, glow sticks, balls and flares and uh, derogatory, press clip- uh, derogatory press clippings of Shania Twain and finally cream magazines that do not mention Ted Nugent are forbidden from the Foo Fighters backstage <laughs> area I thought you were going to mention about Scott Walker and then realised you could have done it in one <laughs> alright over to yeah, me but, yeah. uh, I, believe it or not guys I've done it in two steps well wow. then. Yeah. And Scott Walker's ex-girlfriend went out with David Bowie and actually played his records to Bowie a lot and apparently originally really annoyed David Bowie and then gradually he was like, God damn it, this is really good. Uh, David Bowie lived next door to Courtney Love in New York City at uh, 285 Lafayette uh, and apparently had to chin her about her stereo volume at least once. And <laughs> uh, and this is where it gets really interesting uh, because in 2004, in March 2004, on the Howard Stern show, Courtney Love described uh, giving Ted Nugent a blowjob when she was 12 years old. Uh, in her words, too young to have breasts. Uh, Ted Nugent, by the way, knows about this and has never denied it, as far as I'm aware. Bearing in mind that Ted Nugent publicly called uh, at the NRA, the many NRA uh, rallies that he's, he's been part of, he publicly called for the shooting of pedos in the head. Um, it's <laughs> interesting to also consider that uh, Ted Nugent became the legal guardian of a girl called Pelle Massa, who was 17 when he was 29, uh, to avoid statutory rape charges. Um the age consent in Michigan, in Michigan at the time where he was from was 16 but it was 18 elsewhere so he couldn't travel anywhere with Pele Massa because it would be sex trafficking which is you know something that's affected that guy Matt Gates. Um so yeah he went and approached her parents and got their permission excuse me I'd like to shag your daughter can you sign her over to me so that I don't get busted for it and he says that he's done that a number of times um, with, with really young women that he's approached the parents for permission uh, uh, it's also nice to just colour this story with a final set of details for those that don't know uh, the track Jailbait that Ted Nugent is really famous for uh, the lyrics in case you've never heard them before go I don't care if you're just 13 you look too good to be true I just know you're probably clean Jailbait, you look fine it's alright, I asked your mama Wait a minute, officer. Don't put those handcuffs on me. Put them on her and I'll share her with you. So next week we are doing Ted Nugent. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking guy is a piece of work. He really is. And he gets a fucking pass. He gets an ironic pass because of guys like Dave Grohl and it fucking... Robs me up the wrong way, um, but yeah, the, the Courtney Love thing. You can you can hear the interview. It's it's available online, and it's pretty fucking shocking because they they ask her a few times. She won't say her age at first, and then she admits that it's twelve or twelve and a half, as she says. Mm-hmm. There you go. The old Jimmy Page defence from Ted Nugent there. Eh? He's actually well, yeah, the classic. Jimmy, he's beaten Jimmy Page by what, at least one and a half years. Uh, so there you go. Um, well, on that lovely note, uh, what are we do next. We are doing a little bit of a special next week. We are going to have an interview. 
mm-hmm. an interview with uh, somebody whose work we have discussed before. Falco. Falco. Andy Falco. Andy Falcus of, well, at least McCluskey and Feature of the Left, as well as Christian Fitness. Christian Fitness and, you know, Bits and Bobs besides. A very funny man. Uh, and very funny man. Lovely, lovely gentleman. Politically astute. And I'm sure it's going to be a thrilling conversation. Uh, Andy's given us three really interesting albums to discuss in the second uh, instalment of that show but the first instalment will be a chat with Andy about his back catalogue about his likes and loves within that back catalogue and hopefully a bunch of really amusing little anecdotes besides uh, so yeah join us for that um, are we going to get Falco to do a Nexus? yeah well yeah. in that case we better give him a name eh? so mm-hmm. Andy Falco will be Nexusing himself to Meatloaf <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, I love it. There you go, guys. Um, all right, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be bloody great. That's going to be a blast. So, join us next week and go and try and rinse that dead nugent nexus out your ears because it's yeah. boofing. Fucking horrible. All right, thanks, boys. See you next. And guys, for any listeners in Galway, if you take a photo of yourselves punching a donkey, we will give you <laughs> free premium. We will come a Galway. <laughs> <laughs> we will come a Galway and do an episode with you. <laughs> yeah.